You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. One week ago today, the government imposed a shutdown. We were told not to leave home except for food or medicine or for vital caregiving. We were told to exercise only within two kilometres of our homes. And the over 70s and anyone whose health was compromised should stay at home in all circumstances. It was all done in a bid to flatten the curve of the rise of COVID-19 to keep the rate of new infections low so that our hospital system could cope with those who would become seriously ill. We don't yet know if the measures are enough. Yesterday, there was an 11% rise in the number of confirmed cases to 3,849 and a 15% rise in deaths, 13 more to leave a total in the Republic of 98. At last night's briefing by the Department of Health, the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan, was asked if the restrictions might be eased after April the 12th. We won't be surprised if we find ourselves coming close to the 12th of April that we need to ask the public again to work with us to ensure that we continue to see, if you like, the benefit of the, the measures that we have in place. Um, uh, we'll know fully, as I say, towards the end of next week uh, what, what, what the position is. In other words, what the day-on-day increase and the other measures that we track in the population, we'll be able to make a better assessment of where we, where we stand. Do we need further improvements? Uh, or, 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 or have we in fact turned the corner? We can talk now to our science correspondent, George Lee. George, you were at that briefing last night and there was more detail given on the numbers in intensive care. Now, this is important because it tells us how dangerous COVID-19 is and it allows us to assess our hospital's capacity. So what did we learn about intensive care cases last night? Well, up until now, we'd been getting numbers uh, about how many people had been admitted to intensive care. And that was a number which was the number of people who had been in intensive care since this whole COVID-19 episode began. So we didn't know whether they were still in intensive care or how their cases might or might not have been resolved or how many of them would specifically had died. And there might have been a presumption that when we saw the death numbers that a lot of them had been through intensive care. But what we found out last night that not really, that wasn't the case, uh, that we got uh, 148 cases admitted to intensive care since the beginning of COVID-19 and that of them, uh, luckily 25 of them had 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 their cases dis- or had been discharged. In other words, they had recovered somehow from where, from where they had been, which was really good news. Uh, but that there had been 14 deaths and of those who had been into intensive care, which, which, which left 109 remaining in intensive care. And the average age or the median age of those people was 62. Now, that is 20 years younger than the median age of those who died. Uh, the other thing about it is that you can see that the number of deaths there, it only equates to about 15% of all of the deaths so far. Uh, from those people infected with COVID-19. So most of the people were dying and have been dying outside of intensive care. Uh, the other thing, and, and the, the implication of that is that they may have had, they mostly had underlying health conditions or they may have been particularly in a situation in a nursing home where intensive care wouldn't have really helped an awful lot. So, but most of the people were in that category, 85% had not had not died in intensive care. The other thing which uh, is, jumps out from it as well to me is that of the, if you look at the number of people, if you want to use the term, had their cases resolved, which would have been, they're no longer in intensive care. There were 39 and of them, uh, 35% of them had died. So it is, they're very sick people who go into intensive care. They're younger, 
than what people might have expected when you look at the death statistics. And uh, some of them do come out, but some of them don't come out. And a lot of the people who have underlying health conditions uh, have not been in intensive care. And as I said, George, yesterday's figures rise was 11%. Tony Houlihan said, Dr Houlihan said that if it remained at 10% a day, it would be a challenge to the hospital system, something which Dr Emily O'Connor of the Emergency Medicine Association concurred with this morning. She's very concerned. Dr Houlihan also said that the disease was becoming more of a household disease. What did he mean by that? What he meant, and particularly when you look at the number of close contacts that people who have um, been diagnosed positive with uh, COVID-19, three weeks ago, the typical average was 20. Uh, It's it's very hard to believe it's only three weeks ago so much has happened, but we were up at 20. then. So people who were um, diagnosed positive would have had 20 close contacts. That dropped to five and has now dropped to three. So most of the three are tend to be people in a household. So we had 60% community transmission of the disease, according to the most recent figures. That is somewhere within the community, out and about, people are picking it up, unknown about where that would be. But when you drill down through that, it appears that if you only have about three contacts, well, then most of them are going to be in your household. And that drives it back out of the community, which is a useful thing because it means there's less opportunity out there for uh, the disease to spread a little bit less opportunity, but that three is still too many. You have to get, that is still a reproduction rate, uh, which is well above one, and you've got to get it below one if you've got to stop this virus. So we have an awful long way to go. But within a household, a lot of the uh, uh, people are living so close together that that the infection can spread. I want to talk to you finally about personal protective equipment because this is a huge issue for medical staff on the front line. We know that supplies are coming in from China, George. Some staff are concerned about its suitability. It's heavier and perhaps more robust than they are used to. We got a statement from the HSE last night. They said that some elements of the first batch from China were not ideal, their words, but may be usable if an alternative supply isn't available. They went on to say that infection prevention and control clinical experts from the HSE undertake product testing on all shipments to assess the quality and the suitability. And in this video message to healthcare staff last night, the chief executive of the HSE, Paul Reid, had this to say. I know the issue of PPE, personal protective equipment, has been an issue of major concern. We have been in negotiations worldwide to secure a very significant order of over 200 million and that delivery has started over the last few days. We are, however, engaged worldwide to secure alternative stocks should these supplies not materialise to the extent that we expect. It's a very competitive worldwide market, but our procurement teams have done really well to secure what we have to date. That's Paul Reid in a video message on Twitter last night. George, what do you make of that? Well, obviously there are big issues. This was a huge order that was placed. It's 200 million euro worth of an order uh, for personal protective equipment. There's a global um, rush to try and find all of this stuff. It's very hard to source it. And the HSE uh, felt that they were very lucky to be able to get such a massive amount. And in terms of the amount of order that they put in, typically they would spend 15 million euro on personal protective equipment in an entire year. So 60 million has been sent spent already in a short number of months but this was 208 million so this is absolutely enormous there was nobody on the ground or could be on the ground with regard to checking the stuff in terms of what they were getting uh, because it's so difficult to get to China so they were checking all of this material when it comes on the planes from uh, from China the first one arrived on Sunday uh, it involves Aer Lingus flights coming from here going to China and nobody getting off that flight it's loaded up and it comes back and it arrives in Dublin airport a 25 hour round trip and 
and there are of the order of 50 of those round trips uh, involved in this massive order. Now there are, I think it's five batches of, of, of materials so this is an enormous amount of stuff coming and I think there was some disappointment when they saw some of the equipment because it wasn't quite what the Irish um, uh, healthcare workers mm. are typically expecting. So uh, they have decided, they have tweaked and adjusted the order as they've seen it. Uh, there are obviously going to be issues and eyebrows raised when some people see the material I think uh, uh, the person protective equipment because it's different uh, but the number one thing that the HSE says is that this is World Health Organization uh, quality it is it is it is of the standard and it does work as protective equipment okay. it may not be it, it may need to, to be to be adjusted but the the one thing we should say is that they have identified um, a secondary supply uh, that they could use if needed uh, which I think from their line of supply if they can't get sorted in relation to whatever the issues are on some of this material but it's a big order and uh, no doubt it's a story that we'll hear a little bit more about as people uh, see wh- whether the equipment is, a, is is what they're looking for. Absolutely George thank you as always George Lee our science correspondent. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands out of work, a shrinking economy and large-scale government borrowing. That's the grim picture painted by the central bank in a report this morning. With social and business life shut down across huge areas of activity, the bank is forecasting the Irish economy will shrink by more than 8% this year. Government spending on social welfare payments and health, along with a sharp fall in money coming in from taxes, will mean a budget shortfall this year, the bank says, of around €19 billion. Mark Cassidy is Director of Economics at the Central Bank, and he joins us now. A very good morning to you, Mark, and thank you for talking to us on the programme. Your report predicts half a million out of work this year as a result of the measures to tackle the uh, coronavirus. Um, But it's, I suppose, a measure of how rapidly things are moving that yesterday's live register figures show that we're well on the way to reaching that really very, very distressing, very alarming figure. That's right. The crisis clearly will give rise to a significant number of job losses. As you say, many of these have already materialised. So yesterday's figures point to an increase already of around 320,000, which brought the live register overall up to around 500,000. We're estimating further job losses. We think the total number of job losses from the crisis alone could be close to 500,000. That will be equivalent to an unemployment rate of almost 25% during this period. These will be largely concentrated in sectors like tourism, hospitality, social and recreational activities, large parts of the retail sector and construction. We do think when the containment measures are lifted, there will be a recovery that starts quickly. But we do think the pace of that recovery is likely to be gradual, with some lasting effects also in in terms of permanent job uh, losses. You note this uh, area, social consumption, you describe things like hospitality, recreation, travel and so on. And that accounts for almost, you say, a third uh, of all consumer spending. It's a very big, very important part of the economy. And when it takes a hit, you you see the evidence very clearly. That's right. And we think that type of consumption is reduced to almost zero. And that by itself would reduce annual consumption by almost 8%. There's also another 20% of consumption in things like uh, housing, or sorry, household goods, clothing and footwear, vehicles, and consumption in these areas also will be cut sharply. We think that will recover reasonably quickly. Some, there will be some element of deferred consumption, but overall, um, consumption will recover rather gradually. A lot will depend on how consumer confidence is affected. Consumer incomes will be negatively affected. And we need to see also there might be some lingering effects, um, lingering concerns for consumers about travel or um, 
large gatherings. So consumption will be affected for a while, even after the containment measures are lifted. Talk to us a little bit about the impact of all of this on the public finances, on the government finances, where it is likely to leave government borrowing, because from a situation where we, the government was forecasting a surplus this year, uh, that's not obviously going to be realised now. There's going to have to be a lot of borrowing to meet the costs associated with fighting the infection. Well, there will be a very significant effect, and we're estimating a government deficit of over 10% this year. We think the overall fiscal cost of the crisis this year could be of the order of 22 billion euro. Already, the government has introduced a number of essential targeted supports, including additional healthcare spending, income support measures, support for businesses. We think these could amount to around 8 billion euro. But even larger than this, the final cost will also depend on the impact of the slowdown through lower tax receipts, higher unemployment and social welfare benefits, um, and therefore a significant government deficit over 10%, a large increase also in public debt. Am I correct in understanding that all these forecasts in terms of what might happen to the public finances, to people's jobs, to the economy, to economic activity, they're all based on, at this stage, a a three-month period of effectively economic shutdown for large parts of the the economy. And that actually, uh, if that scenario isn't realised, if this goes on longer than three months, then you'd have to look at all these again and the situation would be very much, potentially very much worse. Well, a assumption of a one-quarter containment is not a forecast. The bank has no capability to predict how long the crisis will last. Other outcomes are certainly possible. If the pandemic could be brought under control in a shorter time period, for example, then the effects would be likely to be less. But there are also more pessimistic potential scenarios, including first, as you say, a longer duration for the containment phase, in which case the effects will be considerably worse, but also a risk of more persistent scarring effects beyond the beyond the end of the pandemic. So this could depend on factors such as the number of firm closures, the extent of permanent job losses and income cuts, how consumers react, and particularly important also the pace of recovery of the global economy and particularly our main trading partners in the US, the UK and Europe, which may come after ourselves. Yeah, and the capacity uh, of, of businesses which are, which are shut down at the moment to get up and running again, the longer this goes on for many of them, the harder that will be. Indeed, that's absolutely the case. The evidence shows that firms can survive for a while, but the longer it takes, the more that um, more struggling firms are likely to have to go out of business, particularly low-margin firms, particularly firms which may already have high indebtedness, particularly those firms that are in um, smaller, uh, more, more affected sectors. So we will inevitably see some firm closures during the containment phase, which will not be reversed, hence jobs that are permanently lost. Uh, and the, the, the hangover, if you like, in terms of the government borrowing that will be generated by all of this and dealing with that after the, after the health crisis passes, Mark, are we going to be able to avoid austerity, as Atishik was uh, insisting uh, yesterday we would? Yes, I think so. I think the last thing you want to be doing when the economy has been hit by a shock like this or is not yet recovered is to be taking more money out of the economy. I think, if anything, more fiscal easing measures might be required to support this recovery. I think the state of the public finances would allow for this, notwithstanding the fact that public debt will increase. I think the economy overall remains in good condition. The public finances have improved in recent years. And very importantly, ECB monetary policy actions will keep government borrowing costs low, so higher levels of debt will be more sustainable. Very good. Mark Cassidy from the Central Bank. Thank you very much indeed for that. 
among the COVID-19 measures announced last week was the cocooning of people over 70, a request that they remain at home until Easter weekend at least and possibly longer. But it's becoming clear over the last few days that there is some confusion as to what the new guidelines require of the over 70s. Our reporter Elise Sheehy has been speaking to Pallard Toll, who's from Dundalk in County Louth, and Liz Dixon from Dublin. Well, from listening to the television and radio, I understood that you could you could go out walking, but I don't understand this thing of uh, being cocooned in your house. My wife lives here with me and my daughter. But, like, what are you going to do? Get a tent and put one out in the garden, one live in the tent and one live in the house. This thing of keeping away from your partner or your wife in the house, I, I, I don't understand that at all. It's ridiculous. I'm 75, my wife's 71. You wouldn't have enough people to deliver all the groceries around Ireland if that was the case with all the over 70s in houses. And you're living with your wife and your daughter and, you know, the guidelines are telling you that, where possible, isolate yourself from other people, even if it's in your house. How, how do you feel about that? Uh, I think that's impossible to do. How do you do that? Now, I, I'm not that stupid to know if my wife got headaches or got a bad cold or was coughing. I would think there was something wrong. I would be away immediately, you know. But to isolate yourself within a house is, is unbelievable. Yes, it is working for me, personally. I am staying in completely, and I have no contact with anybody, only over the phone. And when my family come to bring anything, they just leave it at the door. I open the door, and I don't go out to them or anything. They don't come near me. But then I just come in and spend the whole day in the house or out back. Don't go out the front at all. We just keep in contact with our family over the phone. Hmm. So, Liz, did you actually realise that unless it's essential that you should be distancing yourself from the person that you live with? No. And how do you feel about that? We try to be as separate as possible in the house. Look, we, we find it okay. We're finding it grand because the main thing to me is that everyone's all right now, our families are all right, so we do anything. It's not making me feel as if I'm in a prison or anything now. Uh, Liz Dixon speaking there to Elise Sheehy. Well, let's talk now to the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, who joins us. A very good morning to you, Minister, and thanks for talking to us on the programme this morning. Um, Perhaps we can can begin with this uh, uh, question of the the over-70s, the cocooning of the over-70s. What is being asked of them? Well, look, I think from listening to both Liz and Paddy's um, testimony there, I think you can hear how challenging it is for some people and how I suppose other people perhaps manage it a different way. What we're asking people to do is significant, um, but straightforward really in terms of the message. We're asking them to to stay at home, uh, to stay at home in all circumstances, except except perhaps where they need to seek medical attention or assistance. And what we're asking, I, I don't particularly like the word cocooning, but the idea behind it is that the supports come to them. So I already know that lots of family members are obviously dropping food and leaving it on the doorstep for their moms or their dads. We also have a number of retailers doing delivery services. But in addition to that, we've now set up a contact number in every county council or city council area in the country for any older person or person with a medical condition to contact if they need food or access to any help Mm -hmm. or support. I spoke to Age Action uh, yesterday. I know they've started phoning over 11,000 older people across the country, checking in on them and indeed offering to call back and to keep in touch. Uh, Alone and other charitable organisations have set up a dedicated helpline. Mm-hmm. So it's tough and it's challenging. And are we're they doing being it asked for one very simple reason. I'm yes. sorry, are they being, are sorry, they being asked to isolate themselves from other people in, in the house? Is, is, that, is that part of this? 
So you tend to be a close, you're a close contact by virtue of the fact that you live with people in your house. But insofar as it's possible, you should keep your distance uh, in your in your home from each from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what about those those who are over 70 who are still very, very healthy, very active, large numbers of people and they just can't understand why they shouldn't be able to go out for a walk on what might well be empty streets around their home or on quiet country roads? What harm would that be? And I, and I absolutely understand that. But you have to you have to bear in mind the fact that there's an awful lot of this virus currently circulating in our country. And we know, despite the fact that 70 is not old, I'm very clear on that, and there's many active 70-year-olds in good health, the facts show that when you reach that age, you are more susceptible to getting this virus in a very serious way. So the message from all of our public health experts is clear. It is for a short period of time, and it is, it, it is with one aim in mind, and that is protecting life saving lives and keeping people safe and well but i do want people to know they won't be left alone in these circumstances uh, we're asking them to help us and um, by following these public health measures um, as closely as they possibly can and we are already and i do want to say this because i know it's a difficult and challenging time for people we're already beginning to see the benefit of some of the measures that people have undertaken so you'll remember when i was speaking mm-hmm. to you last week I was telling you that if someone was diagnosed with the coronavirus about two weeks ago, they had on average been in contact with 20 people. That had fallen last week to five people. It's now fallen to three people. So we know as a result of people staying at home, keeping their distance, we're making it harder for this virus to spread from one person to the other. And that is, quite frankly, the only way we are going to be able to slow it down. And the more we can slow it down, the more we can protect our and health service in terms of the critical capacity it'll need for those who do get sick. And those figures you cite are on the basis, presumably, of tests that are being carried out. And there's been uh, a lot of commentary in, in recent uh, days on the number of tests that have been done. We saw test centres suspending operations. People have their tests cancelled. They're waiting up to 10 days and more for their results to come through. The target is 15,000 tests a day. Uh, and, of course, we're well short of that. It's a crucial tool in, in getting ahead of this, uh, in getting ahead of this infection, when is that objective, that target of 15,000 tests a day going to be reached, do you think? Well, we heard from Killian de Gaskin, the uh, head of the National Virulence Reference Laboratory, that he thinks there's about 10 more days in terms of putting in all of the capacity we need to really ramp up our testing. But can I just say this? We had our first case of the coronavirus in our country just a month ago. During that period of time, the health service has worked flat out to put in place the pathways and the structures to be able to provide testing. We've gone from a situation whereby you maybe needed the ambulance to call to your home to take the test to one where we now have dozens of test centres across the country. We've now secured a a supply of testing kits. And the big issue now outstanding is to ramp up the lab capacity. There's huge work going in relation to that. We've gone from one lab to 10 and we're due to have more come on stream next week. But I do need to say this also. People need to know that the test does not change what they would be advised to do by their doctor. So the most important thing you do if you have symptoms is you phone your GP and we're all being asked to stay at home at this stage, but you yes. self-isolate and within I think your pe- home. That is I how think- you slow down the spread. And that's a very important message to get over. But the, the crucial thing here is the information that the tests give those who are trying to fight this virus. And you were saying back on, on March 19th to my colleague Sean O'Rourke that you believe this target or you hoped would be reached within the next few days. That didn't happen. So why this yeah, and, difficulty in and reaching and, 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 this objective? 
and 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 hands up and complete and utter honesty here there's no room for political answers during a pandemic the reality is we are meeting supply constraints that lots of other countries around the world are meeting as well um, the situation we're facing here is not in any way unique to ireland but i'm very satisfied that the health service is doing everything humanly possible to ramp up testing in addition to that uh, and importantly the national public health emergency team yesterday uh, adopted a recommendation from the chief medical officer to further improve contact tracing so if you have somebody now who is symptomatic and in certain groups the contact tracing in other words talking to the people who've been in close contact with them will now happen in advance of a test even taking place so when you look across the water in the uk or indeed when you look at most european countries despite the difficulties that we're facing here we are still testing more per head of population than most countries in the european union indeed more than 30,200 people have already had their test results through the labs. These are things, Brian, that in normal time, as you know, would take a year, if not longer, to set up, have been put in place within the space of, of a mere few weeks. I'd like to ask you about the situation in relation to nursing homes, because we've seen and concern expressed about a number of clusters. I think 22 was the latest figure I saw for clusters of the infection in nursing home settings. Yes. Now, what's happening in relation, particularly about providing additional financial supports uh, to those operating nursing homes and uh, trying to deal with this? So can I just say, we need to make sure we don't leave anybody behind in relation to this public health emergency. And there are two groups that I'm particularly concerned about at the moment that are the absolute focus of my work and the work of my department this week. That's those living in long-term residential settings, including nursing homes, and it's also our healthcare professionals and ensuring we protect them in all of the various settings. We have seen a number of clusters of virus break out across the nursing homes. And yes, government will look at providing financial support to help nursing homes meet those costs, but I, I, in terms of protecting people from COVID-19. But much more importantly, I need to talk to you this morning about some of the things we're now going to need to do in our nursing home sector to protect residents, to keep them safe, mm -hmm. and to protect the staff as well. So we're going to be asking HICWA, who know the nursing home sector, as you, like, as you know, they know it like nobody else. We're going to be asking them to help identify uh, vulnerabilities and places at risk so we can put in more supports in terms of staff and resources. We're going to be providing more personal protective equipment. We're going to be putting in place a health check for staff at the start of each shift so that if anybody has a symptom or isn't feeling well they can be sent home immediately so that it doesn't spread uh, throughout the nursing home. Every nursing home is going to be asked to provide a COVID lead um, and also crucially we're going to be providing isolation facilities where for either staff or residents where isolation can't be provided for in the nursing home uh, can be offered a place. And how we have to get this right in the next couple of days. And how soon would you hope to see all this coming into, into effect? So I think importantly, a lot of this is already underway. There's a lot of example of best practice already in place. But from today, uh, the HSE, HICWA uh, and the Department of Health will be talking further to nursing homes. We'll be looking at how we can ramp up staffing resources, trying to establish, let's call them outbreak teams, where if there's a particular geographic area or number of nursing homes where there is infection, that we can support the staff working there. I really want us to get this right. We know that we know that when it comes to mortality, we know that older people are particularly at risk. I want to make sure we can do everything we can to protect them. I also, quite bluntly and frankly, we need to make sure that the nursing homes don't become a source of spread for infection into the community. So I want to thank Nursing Homes Ireland. I met them this week and there's a lot of work we're going to get underway this week on that. Minister for Health, Simon Harris, thank you very much indeed for talking to us uh, this morning.
Well, how can someone physically distance themselves from others when they share a living space? How can they self-isolate if they have COVID-19 symptoms? Those are the very real challenges facing those living in direct provision, emergency accommodation, hostels and travellers. And it's how the travelling community is coping that we're going to examine in depth now. Over 3,000 of them live on the side of the road with no running water. We're joined by our reporter Tommy Meskel. So Tommy, these are real challenges for the travelling community. Yes, Audrey, exactly. And when you look at the practical advice we've been given over the past few weeks, such as wash your hands with warm water and soap or for the at-risk groups to keep confined to your own home and socially distance from others, that is very difficult for members of the travelling community. Their average household is 5.3 people. For the rest of the population, it's 4.1. And if they're not on the sides of the road, well, then many travellers are in crowded conditions. It's believed that roughly 5,000 are living on sites that are above capacity. In a short while, we'll hear from Winnie McDonough, who is a traveller and also a health worker. Winnie was tested for COVID-19 after displaying symptoms. But first, Winnie Riley is living with her son in her mobile home and beside her is her daughter and four grandchildren. Winnie first described the space she's been living in and told me about how they've coped over the past few weeks. It's a 30-foot mobile home with one bedroom, a little sitting area and a very small kitchen. There's no running water or electricity in it. There's a few people in your family, I understand, that have underlying health conditions. Could you tell me about that? Well, I have a grandson that's a diabetic and he needs the fridge for his medication and insulin. And then we have a child just two bays up that relies on a, a, on a breathing mask because she has health issues as well. And we have an older person on the site, which is a father-in-law of mine, and he needs his medication for the fridge as well. So some of them have generators and some people haven't got generators. And you have no running water. And yet we hear all the time no. about the importance of, of washing your hands with warm water and soap. H- how do you manage that? Yes. What we do is we just boil up water on, on the gas and have a big kettle of water at all times. Just there for purposely washing your hands. It's not easy when you haven't got the facilities to do that. You know your father-in-law. Can I ask, what age is he? He's 84. You hear the advice about cocooning to stay in your own house and to stay away from people. Is that possible for him? Well, it's, it's very lonely for him because he can't read. He can't use a phone. And all he's seen is the news all the time and listens to the news on the radio. So that's not good for your mental health alone to listen to that 24-7 all day. You know what I mean? But he still has to come outside to go to the toilet. Is he on his own? He's in a bay on his own. People keep an eye to him. We check in on him all the time. But he's just sitting there looking out the window and it is very long. He could pick up a book and read it or something, but he can't do that and he can't use a phone either. Most of the older travellers can't read. So they're getting the leaflets in the door. Now the, the council, City Council, Dublin City Council has dropped out leaflets and they assume that everyone can read, but they can't. Some of the older travellers can't read, so they haven't a clue what's on them, unless there's pictures with people washing their hands. That's Winnie Riley there explaining very clearly the challenges for her and her family um, as part of the travelling community. The traveller representative organisation is Pavi Point. You've been talking to them, Tommy. What do they have to say? 
I was, yes. Martin Collins, he's co-director of Pavi Point, and he praised the recent emergency legislation which banned traveller evictions and said the focus is now on trying to secure sanitation and self-isolation facilities for those that need it. He says research has shown that travellers and Roma suffer due to health inequalities with life expectancy considerably lower for travellers. They're more likely to have underlying health conditions. Pavi Point has been working hard to communicate the importance of social distancing and also washing your hands. And overall, many in the community are taking that advice on board. But Martin is worried that some aren't taking the pandemic seriously. Some travellers are not observing uh, the advice from the HSE and, and, and the government. And to be quite honest, that is absolutely reckless and it's irresponsible and it's potentially putting people's lives on the line. That's how serious it is. And that's the message we're trying to get across. But by and large, I have to say, the message is getting through to, uh, to the majority of travellers and they are observing uh, the very strict guidelines and advice which have been issued from the government and the HSE. But there is uh, certainly a significant uh, minority in our community who are not uh, uh, taking this issue uh, seriously and are not observing the guidelines. And we have to try and reinforce the message to that cohort of people who are not heeding the advice. It's Martin Collins there of Pave Point. Tommy, do we know at this point have any members of the travelling community tested positive for COVID-19? We don't have any official numbers, Audrey, but Martin Collins did say that he knows of several travellers who have contracted COVID-19. Unfortunately, a colleague of his at Pave Point, who was from the Roma community, died from the disease last week. I attended that funeral myself only last week. He was only 46 years old. He was a father of eight children and four of them were under 18 years of age. Uh, so, you know, that's how serious it is. You know, we're, we're talking about people's lives here. But I do know anecdotally, uh, there's about, I know of at least six or seven travellers who have contracted the virus, but that would be an underestimation. We suspect there's a lot more. But that information is being gathered uh, as we speak uh, from, from different travel groups right across the country, and it'll be, it'll be collated centrally by Pavi Point and the HSE. Now, Winnie McDonough is a healthcare worker and traveller. Last week, she was tested for COVID-19 after displaying symptoms. Uh, she told me how she got on. I got the test in Clow Park. And I went and I got a quarter of seven in the evening. They gave us... I had to get someone to drive me because I don't drive. So we went through, like a tr- drive through. I got my test. They put kind of a cotton mug ball down my throat and up my nose. Now, up the nose was very uncomfortable, but it had to be done. And I got that done last Wednesday, and I'm still waiting for my results. And uh, obviously, you have to self-isolate. Have you been able to self-isolate? I have been trying and doing my best. It's very hard because I've two, I've an 18-year-old and I've a 14-year-old, and I have my da- oldest daughter that's 24 with two grandchildren, and I've one little baby she's only four weeks today, little girl, and she has a little brother and he's coming in five. So my concerns was for them trying to keep away as a granny I haven't been touching them or kissing them or hugging them I've been keep, keeping me distance but it is very hard when you, we all live in the one house so I am wiping everything after me and washing the towels and washing the clothes and using that all and sprays and keep a basin of water outside the door so when anyone was going in or out just to keep rinsing their hands and the that all and the water now the 18 year old and the 14 year old doesn't see the sense of it, but just kind of keep telling them and washing the baby's hands, little five-year-old, and washing his ties and 
wiping everything down every morning, even every chance you get her, you keep wiping. And as we heard Winnie say there, she's still awaiting the results of her tests. Uh, she still has slight symptoms, but thankfully is over the worst and seems to be on the mend. We wish her well. Thank you very much. Tommy Meskel there with that report on the challenges of COVID-19 for the travelling community. An increasing number of patients critically sick rather, with the coronavirus is fueling demand for ventilators at hospitals around the world. Keen McCormack has been finding out how the medtech industry in Ireland is responding to the pandemic and he joins us now. Keen, first, let's talk about the number of ventilators here. How many do we have? Well, Gavin, presently there's 1,229 ventilators in the country. The HSE says 300 more are on their way and a further 600 ventilators are on order. And the demand worldwide is obviously growing. And as it does, companies, academics and scientists are sharing designs. They're teaming up so more ventilators can be built as fast as possible. Some of those teams are in Ireland. One of them is called Open Source Ventilator Ireland Project. It involves 2,000 scientists, doctors, designers and engineers contributing online. It's based in UCD. Here's the co-founder of the project, mechanical engineer Colin Kyo. The only time that a joint effort like this had been made in the past would have been the Second World War. You know, so you have countries, you have governments, you have companies all freely coming together to help the development of like things like open source ventilators. People that normally don't work in that space have actually came together because it is a war. It's a war of humanity and all the countries in it against this coronavirus. It's a field of emergency ventilator we're working on. So it's basically, it is an, a ventilator for use in emergencies only in situations when no other standard ventilator options are available. So a last kind of ditch effort to keep people alive. Can people in Ireland benefit from this? The HSE has done a very, very good job, in my opinion, so far of contro- controlling coronavirus. You know, so did all of the community as well. And, you know, social distancing and all of the issues. So I'd be quite confident that we wouldn't see need for them in Ireland. But for other countries in the world, I'm not so sure. So as soon as coronavirus takes hold in more developing countries with less kind of robust healthcare systems, there could be a huge demand for these. But even if there was in a real worst case scenario in Ireland, which I'm pretty confident we won't see, if there was and if that occurs in a couple of weeks or a couple of months time in the worst scenario, I'd like to have something here and ready if it was needed in Ireland. That's Colin Keogh. Kean, there's been much coverage of another emergency ventilator supported by Galway-based Boston Scientific. Tell us more. Well, the project is called the COVID Response Team. It's led by John Wallace, who uh, has an engineering firm called IDS Solutions in Tomb Graney in County Clare and in Raheen in County Limerick. Wallace has pulled together experts, engineers and medics, and he expects to have a prototype battlefield ventilator ready for testing within the next few days. Boston Scientific has supported the project as a community outreach project. Here's John Wallace. The ventilator that we're looking at is is a relatively simple ventilator. It's for the most seriously ill patients, but it's not the sophisticated kind of ventilator that somebody like Medtronic would produce uh, for normal use in a theatre. It's a ventilator, if things go badly with COVID-19, may be used if the Medtronic and the other uh, high-end ventilators are not available. Our system will be available for anybody to build. So we will build a certain amount ourselves, We believe that it will be possible to build these in significant numbers in a short period of time. 
Well, ventilators need to meet regulation and safety standards, and usually that process can take years. Here's Liam Turley, CEO of Trenzo, a consulting company to the medical device, pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical industries. From design, the very start, to actually getting a product on the market can take up to five years for a very um, extensive design of course, now we hear there's such a need for ventilators. So can the process be accelerated? I think, you know, always you, you'll have to make sure that it's safe and effective. But I'm sure that there are ways that um, it could be accelerated. Um, I think, you know, one of the ways to improve the availability of ventilators is to, you know, mass produce the existing designs. So most of the designs that are on the market at the moment would be already proven safe and effective. So if you're able to replicate manufacturing sites, you know, throughout Europe, throughout the world, that would be a very fast and efficient way of um, increasing the number of ventilators available. Medtronic, one of the world's biggest manufacturers of ventilators, announced yesterday it would publicly share some of its ventilator designs. On top of this, the company is working to more than double its ventilator production. And to do this, it has doubled the numbers of staff at one of its facilities at Merview in Galway. Again, here's Liam Turley. They're going to allow access to the design and manufacturing information for their PB560 ventilator. That's a, a mid-tier ventilator. And I think there's a huge opportunity for other CEOs within the industry to follow suit to allow companies access to how you build, how you manufacture ventilators to help with that increasing demand. And this is an area that you feel strongly about. You are writing a letter to CEOs to encourage them to follow what we've seen from Medtronic. That's correct, Ian, and I intend to get that letter out on Friday, particularly for the poorer countries where, you know, they don't have the capacity to to buy ventilators. I think in in second and third tier countries, I think there's a huge opportunity to uh, allow them to manufacture, you know, well-designed, good quality ventilators to support their, their increasing demand as well. Liam Turley, CEO of Tinvio there. Kian, overall, how is the medtech industry reacting here? Well, it's reshaping what it does and focusing on increased demand. So, for instance, while companies like Medtronic work to more than double the numbers of ventilators it makes, that means that other companies need to increase their production to to match that. So here's Nessa Fenley, the acting director of the Irish MedTech Association. The Irish MedTech sector its export figures are 12.6 billion euros. There are 40,000 people working in the sector in Ireland. Facilities are ramping up to 24-7 production as demand increases, I guess, across a whole range of products. Cancellation of elective surgeries mean that demand for certain products has decreased, while demand for other products COVID-19 related has ramped up. With with the increase in production um, of ventilators, obviously suppliers are also ramping up in terms of manufacturing parts to go into those um, ventilators. Ireland, you know, is critical to the healthcare system globally. Nessa Fenley, the acting director of the Irish MedTech Association there. Keen McCormack, thanks for joining us this morning. 
Well, certainly enjoying those online concerts has been brilliant in the past few weeks because, as we know, staying in is the new going out. As we head into another weekend of shutdown, people are looking for new ways to socialise all from a distance. No more pubs, bars, hotels, nightclubs for a while. So what does the new Friday night look like? Well, we are joined this morning by comedian Alison Spittle and 2FM presenter Stephen Byrne. Good to have you both in the programme. Alison, how are you getting on? What are you doing? How are you spending your Friday nights? Oh, uh, at the moment with a hot and cold tea bag on my eye, I've got a sty and it's driving me mad. Uh, I'm in London and I'm self-isolating and uh, watching films. That's what I do every night, actually. 9pm, I watch a film with people on Twitter. Uh, I call it Co-Video Party and people get to have a chat and watch a film that they've probably seen before. So it's basically like uh, like being with your friends and making fun of an old film that you've seen and you can just have the chats. It's great crack. It's great crack, exactly, because you're all watching the same thing and, and, and having a laugh. Stephen, what about you? Um, for me, mostly kind of just trying to get as many of my friends into one room as possible and pretend that we are actually together. Obviously, there's so many different kind of services now that people can use. And there's been a big debate, I think, over the last little while over which one is the best. But the truth is, it's more about the people and just getting everybody together um, online at once. And it can actually be fun that's the thing I think a lot of people might feel that you know a, a lot of the social side of what you would usually have on a weekend is lost but through that people are finding new ways to uh, to communicate and even have fun in terms of you know having house parties or uh, I have a friend who's going on a date tonight as well through through an app um, so people get creative when when you know when they need it need a workaround yeah and Alison Hard and all as it is, we do need to stay as connected as possible to our friends and our family. And technology makes that an awful lot easier. Yes, definitely. And uh, we've seen since since we've been asked to stay in, there's actually so many new apps that I've never heard of before that you just have to get used to to, to talk to your friends. There's the app that Stephen mentioned, House Party, uh, which is brilliant. It's real kind of sociable. It's, it's for, for, for real kind of and non-formal chats. People are doing business through Zoom. Um, and I find like I'm ringing my grandparents a lot more. Video video calling is very important. And also uh, setting out the time uh, to chat to your friends. I, I find myself more connected now than I did before because if I'm in someone's presence, I could be messing with my phone. I could be messing with something else. But now when I make an appointment to chat to someone, you know, we're there, we're on our own. There's no other distraction but ourselves. So it's it's it. I wouldn't say good because I don't think the situation is good at all. But I, 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 I do find myself being able to socialise uh, in that way. Yeah. And I have to say, Zoom is having a, a great pandemic. I had never heard of it until about <laughs> two weeks ago. Um, and yes. it's, it's everywhere now. And, and Stephen, you were talking about doing table night quizzes online with your friends. Yeah, I've been to two of these and they're actually just so much fun. So it's just about getting, you know, one friend to do up a big kind of table uh, quiz list of questions on things that have happened in your friend group over the years that you've actually known each other. Because then not only does it give everyone, you know, something to look forward to during the week, maybe on the Friday night, um, you know, with a few glasses of wine and all your friends in one place. But it starts to bring up old stories that might have come up if you were sitting around a table together and uh, you might as well have been out on the town and it can like I, I I personally thought it was something that you know might just be a novelty for an hour but you end up you know it could be two three in the morning and you're literally laughing till you're sore um and it's just a great way of of 
talking about you know things that have happened to you guys and remembering a lot of things that have happened in the past but also getting a little bit competitive and uh, uh you know just having lots and lots of fun in a way that you wouldn't have actually before um a lot of my friends actually have done come dine with me nights as well which is kind of everyone one recipe they all choose it everyone cooks it together on zoom or on house party or something like that then they all sit down at the same time and they compare their efforts and then there's a few people who have just got takeaways and pretended and then done that as well but <laughs> that, people are me. getting creative and uh, it's just really lovely to see people are kind of yearning for that connection right now absolutely um, and, and they're finding new ways to do it and Alison here's the big question do you get dressed up for these nights out online oh absolutely yeah we've got I, I've, I've never worn as much makeup in my life as I have inside now whether it's Me good too. makeup or not I know I'm telling you men men all over Ireland paint your nails there's nothing stopping you it's there in the house you can get it give it a go you're not going to work you're grand um, yeah I, uh, I dress up as characters from films that we're going to see on co-video party so when Matilda was shown I was Miss Trunchbull I even dressed up as Shrek now that took a lot of green eyeshadow a lot of green eyeshadow but it was worth it <laughs> well that sounds fantastic uh, stay safe both of you uh, stay at home uh, wash the hands and, and above all else I suppose these Friday nights and Saturday nights they're, they're very cheap nights out so we're, we're saving a bit of money as we go great to have you both on the programme this morning Thank Alison you. Spittle <laughs> and Stephen Thank Byrne so it's much. nearly a minute to nine No, you're not imagining things. It is the sports news, except we don't have any news for you, so we're going to indulge in some sheer nostalgia. Isn't that right, Darren Farrell? 100% Gavin. Who needs news when we've got stuff like this to give you on a, a, a Tuesday morning? Day two of our Sporting Moments series here on Morning Ireland. And given that lack of action at the moment, we're just trying to fill the void with a new segment looking back at memorable Irish sporting moments the people and the talking points as well. So if you're missing your sport, this is just for you. And the idea is just to kind of keep the sporting conversation going while we're in this crisis at the minute. Yesterday, we had a massive reaction to John Tracy. Lots of people have been in touch with their favourite events. If you want to get in touch, email sportingmoments at rte.ie. We're going to get through them over the next few weeks. This morning, we revisit one of the most famous moments of them all, the 1990 World Cup Genoa, Packy Bonner, and that save. And indeed, now he signals that there is no time for any more. So, for the very first time in the history of Irish international soccer, the Republic of Ireland team is involved in a penalty shootout. Different times then, of course, uh, there was no really in-depth analysis. And the only player that we knew was Hadji. The rest of them, uh, we didn't really have much of a clue. But we did have to come up with a bit of a plan, myself and Jerry, and, and just look at the way that they approached it, the way that the players ran up, the the angle, their body language. Of course, personal preparation too of getting the brain right and relaxing and just being in in, in control. Bonner furious with himself again. He guessed correctly, but his dive took him below the trajectory of the penalty kick. Daniel Tomofti himself, uh, he came on as a substitution, I remember, during the game. And the way that he walked up um, to the ball, that slow walk up, he didn't look that comfortable. And I had gone the right way for, you know, the penalties and nearly saved one before that. And it's now Romania's second substitute, Daniel Tomofti, Dynamo Bucharest, midfield player, to step forward. So I was kind of almost on a, on a bit of a high uh, and then he, of course, he stood at that 
incredible angle. He stood away to my right-hand side and I always knew that the ball was going to go into my right-hand side, the same side that he stood at. Timote against Bonner. wasn't struck with great uh, pace and it was a nice height uh, and once I went the right way I, I knew that I say I, I would save it and I must say I jumped the highest I've ever jumped after that penalty. David O'Leary is entrusted with the responsibility of taking the penalty that could send Ireland into the quarterfinals of the World Cup. This kick can decide it all. The nation holds its breath. Yes, we're there! And of course, the motion after David scored that uh, that final penalty was quite immense. And you know, everybody from the bench, everybody running across the pitch to jump on top top of Dave, and uh, it was quite extraordinary. And and uh, when you look back at it now, it was it was magnificent. But. Just a realisation then, I think, that uh, we had achieved something quite incredible that we didn't expect. Getting out of the group was a, a, a real bonus for us. Uh, but then to beat Romania, to get to a quarter-final, to beat Italy. And, you know, recently I, I watched the, the Maradona uh, documentary um, and, like, we were two steps away from maybe uh, playing, you know, Argentina in a semi-final. Um, and that, unfortunately, Italy outdone us. But... Uh, Beating Romania to get to a quarter-final was any boy's dream. Ireland are through to the quarter-finals of the World Cup and the most popular supporters in Italy have another journey to make. As the years have gone by and I've got a little bit older and greyer, but I do realise that uh, lots of people still remember that moment. And it's amazing when you capture the emotion in people uh, over a, through a moment or a situation like that, I think then that really people will remember it for the rest of their lives where they were, who they were, what. Um, and some people came up to me and, you know, said to me, thanks very much. You've kind of almost helped make a connection with myself and my family during that period, which is a lovely thing to say, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that I was a, a, a main character in that and the rest of the guys, Ray and Andy and Cass and Dave and all of the team. Um, we all we all probably still bask in the glory of it, which is quite incredible 30 years later. Genoa tonight belongs to Ireland. Pat Bonner, the big man from the Rosses. Well, he's a hero of all Ireland tonight. Yeah, he certainly was. You know the idea. Get in touch with your ideas, your moments. The email again, sportingmoments at rt.ie. We have something a little bit different tomorrow morning. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.